Did the U.S. deliberately support the Nazis in the lead-up to the Second World War? Can big business interests in the United States thrive in 2019 without supporting an agenda of war and militarism? What is the relationship between authentic social justice struggles around race and class at home and anti-imperialist solidarity work? What tools are being used by the ruling classes in the United States to sabotage the anti-war movement? Are Russiagate and the Trump impeachment drama advancing rather than undermining the American war agenda? On a Remembrance Day week dedicated to commemorating those who died serving their country in past conflicts, we examine how capitalist forces are driving wars past and present and examine some of the steps that need to be taken in order to truly say never again to war. In our first half hour, we hear from Dr. Jacques Powell's about the less-than-heroic involvement of the United States in the Second World War. In our second half hour, U.S. peace activist and politician Ajamu Baraka talks about the historical background of the anti-war movement in the U.S. and why the movement, after 50 years, has largely lost its ability to threaten the plans of the powerful. On this week's program, Never Again, can we stop the war when big business profits from it? Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 8th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabega King the homeland of the Métis Nation in the historical territory of Nahiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. New Delhi argues that signing what is widely interpreted as a free trade agreement with China would explode its already significant $57 billion U.S. a year trade deficit. The barely disguised secret is that India's economy, as the historical record shows, is inherently protectionist. There's no way a possible removal of agricultural tariffs protecting farmers would not provoke a social cataclysm. Modi, who is not exactly a bold statesman with a global vision, is between a heavy rock and a very hard place. President Xi Jinping offered him a 100-year plan for China-India partnership at their last informal bilateral summit. That comes from the article, Asia's Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP. The RCEP train left the station and India behind by Pepe Escobar. Post November 6th, originally published on Asia Times. The Koch brothers have, in repressed public fact, made most of their big oil fortune from refining tar sands crude in the U.S., which has in turn produced the tides of hidden dark money to finance right wing extremism in the U.S. and Canada without any media investigating it. At the same time, they have bought licenses for up to 2 million hectares of the tar sands upstream to control the gargantuan carbon-polluting cycle with silent Alberta support. Yet as far as the Canadian public and commentators are concerned, these monstrous facts do not exist and are even now never mentioned in the media or public discourse as the Cokes have sold off their licenses once exposed. 
Instead, the virulent realities of Alberta's wealth are buried behind a pervasive promotion of the, quote, necessity of Alberta to get its oil to market, unquote. Stampeded by the multimedia campaign of Western alienation and the absurd claim that the fall of Alberta tar sands, quote, is a deliberate policy of the Trudeau government, unquote, the Trudeau liberals have been rushing to provide representation to it. That comes from the article, From Canada's Election to Public Action Beyond the Moral Tumor of Alberta Tar Sands, by Professor John McMurtry, posted November 6th. While inadmissible in a court of law, why should hearsay be allowed when the subject is as profound as impeachment of a president? Real-life CIA whistleblower John Kiriakow, who served 22 months in prison, suggested this, quote, Whistleblower is not a whistleblower, but an anonymous CIA analyst within the Democratic House staff, unquote. When was the last time a real whistleblower was protected by the government from public exposure? There has been no explanation as to why this informant's identity has necessarily been kept secret, and not just from the public, but from members of Congress, especially as Republican members have been unable to question him. There has been no further information regarding a second whistleblower who allegedly came forward to corroborate the first WB, although why it is necessary to corroborate that which has already been publicly revealed remains questionable. That comes from the article, When is a whistleblower not a whistleblower? From Russiagate to Ukrainegate, by Renee Parsons, post November 6th. Even the Mediterranean is not expansive enough to allow Russian subs to disappear. It is hardly surprising, then, that the Russian Defense Ministry is commissioning considerable numbers of new-generation, stealthier subs in response to the Aegis game-changer. This also makes the northern fleet in Murmansk particularly key to the effectiveness of Russia's nuclear deterrent, with no American fleet in immediate proximity. Furthermore, the point cannot be overemphasized that with 17 million square kilometers of resource-rich territory, but a population density of only eight persons per square kilometer, maintaining the effectiveness of Russia's nuclear deterrent is an existential necessity. In this regard, the strategic role of the Aegis Ashore missile defense system deployed by the United States in Central Europe is essentially aggressive. That comes from the article, The New Cold War, Russia's Stealth-Capable 955 Bore-class Submarines, U.S. NATO's Aegis Ashore Missile Defense, by Padraig McGrath, posted November 6th, originally published on Infobricks. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. It has been 75 years since the landing of Allied forces on the beaches of Normandy and ultimately the end of the second major global conflict of the 20th century. While the U.S. is portrayed in a heroic light during the Second World War as championing freedom and democracy and fighting against the evils of fascism and despotism, there is ample documentation to the effect that U.S. capitalist interests actually helped to create the Nazi monsters they would end up fighting, and that their military engagement after 1941 was not for the noble reasons typically portrayed in popular culture. 
To get a clearer understanding of these historical realities, the Global Research News Hour reached out to Dr. Jacques Powells. He's a Belgian-born Canadian historian and author of numerous articles and books, uh, most notably his 2000 book, The Myth of the Good War, America in the Second World War. Many of his articles are posted at Global Research. We started our conversation with a review of exactly how and why U.S. ruling class interests supported the Nazi war machine. Well, yes. Um, what's important to know is that in the late 1920s, there was a major investment offensive, an American investment offensive in Germany, meaning that uh, almost all big American corporations took over or started new businesses in Germany. And in, I'm talking about big businesses. For example, General Motors took over the biggest manufacturer of cars in Germany called Opel, and Opel is still there today. It's a big factory near Frankfurt Airport, actually. And uh, the same with Ford started a big company, a big factory in near Cologne. And other companies became involved as well. And banks became involved in Germany. And I can't go into the details, the reasons why, why that was. But it has to do with the fact that after the war, Germany had to make reparation payments to France and so on. And they wanted to get away from that as much as possible. So they had an, an interest in selling their assets to foreign buyers. And that way they could mask their wealth and prevent it from being from being used to pay back the French and, and the Belgians and so on. But So that's a bit of a complicated an issue by itself. But what's important to know is that from about 1930 on, American capital, American capital was, was a big presence in Germany. And... Uh, when big firms invest in another country, it's not to do favors to the locals, it's to do favors for themselves. It's to make money, of course, on behalf of the shareholders, the owners, the managers, and you name it. So the question to be asked immediately then is, well, how did they do? Did they do very well in Germany? Was business good? You know, did investment pay off? And the answer is absolutely not in the beginning, because the early 30s, you know, no sooner were, were the American investors present in Germany then the, the big international crisis hit, the Great Depression, as they call it in the United States, and the profits dropped big time. You know, the sales went down, production went down, profits went down. So times at first were not good at all. Now, mind you, it was no better in the United States. But then in 1933, something interesting happened, namely Hitler comes to power. And from that moment on, American investments in Germany started to do much better. Production went up and profits went up. And boy, the good times were suddenly there, even though, for example, in the United States, business remained very bad. The United States remained mired in the Great Depression. But in Germany, things improved. And that was all because of that new guy in charge in Germany called Adolf Hitler, who came to power in 1933 and became the dictator. And boy, 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 you could do business with Hitler because, you see, he basically restarted the engine of the German economy by means of a system of a program of rearmament, preparing for war, that is, and purchasing all kinds of planes and tanks and trucks you know, to fight a war. You know, that was, of course, coming down the pipe. Everybody kind of knew it, that Hitler was a warmonger. But, of course, that was not a concern for the companies that could suddenly produce. And the profits went up because Hitler and the Nazis were not communists. They did not sort of confiscate these businesses. In fact, they placed big orders and they paid. They paid with money which they borrowed from, well, for example, from American banks. You know, and that meant good 
you know, money profits were made by American banks doing business in, the, in in Nazi Germany. One of these banks, by the way, was the Union Bank of New York, which was run by a fellow called uh, was the grandfather of George W. Bush, you know, the father of the, uh, the earlier Bush president. So, the, so American banks and corporations suddenly, via their investments and other business deals with Nazi Germany, were making a lot of money in Germany, in Nazi Germany. And all that thanks to that guy with a little mustache called Adolf Hitler. So they liked Hitler a lot. And another thing that advantage was that Hitler smashed the trade unions and the Communist Party and the Social Party in Germany. And that were the kinds of reds that the American companies had problems with in the United States themselves. And boy, they loved what Hitler was doing to those guys, to their class enemies, to put it that way. They just wished they had a leader like him in the States. But instead, they had Roosevelt, who, from the perspective of American captains of industry, was a bit too easygoing with respect to, to the unions and so on. You know, so they preferred Hitler's approach, which was to smash the unions. And that mm. meant, meant lower labor costs. So between the increased demand generated by Hitler's rearmament program and the lower costs result of Hitler's, Hitler's anti-social, you know, anti-union, anti-socialist and anti-communist policies, the American, the American investments in Germany started to do much better, started to make a lot of money. And uh, that was why they liked Hitler a lot. And that's why they had nothing whatsoever against Nazism. And that's why in the United States, there were no plans ever made in the 30s, not until 1941, in fact, for war against Germany. Hollywood now sort of presents the presents a view of, of the United States as being all against Hitler, all against Nazism, all against dictatorship already before the war. And it's just simply not true. I mean, most American leaders, especially the captains of industry, liked Hitler a lot. They, they, the saying was, you can do business with Hitler. You can make money thanks to Hitler. And Hitler was also the guy that was not only then showing how you could handle the Reds, you know, the the the, the, the union, the union leaders, the, the the socialists, the communists, the anarchists, but when the issue came up, what Hitler would use all these weapons for, what kind of war he was preparing for, the answer was obviously read Mein Kampf. It's all in there. It's going to be a war against a country in the east, a country called the Soviet Union. And that is, of course, the, that is the mecca of the Reds all over the world, including a source of inspiration and guidance even for the, America's own Reds. So the idea that Hitler would someday use all that equipment produced for him by American corporations, that he would use that to smash the Soviet Union, that was something they, could, they, could, they, only, they welcomed big time. They couldn't wait to see him do that. Yeah, the, sat, the Nazis were America's uh, attack dog on the Soviets. That's essentially what they were doing. But that all changed uh, in, uh, well, there was the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor. There was the Battle of Moscow. And suddenly you get this situation where Germany declares war on the United States. And that's quite contrary to the, the view that the United States declared war on Germany. But so this declaration by Germany took the U.S. By, more by surprise, actually, than Pearl Harbor did. C could you maybe explain what German, what Hitler's motive was in declaring war against the United States, which was supporting them up to that point? Yes. Well, the, the reason why Hitler did it was out of desperation. I mean, you have to understand that Pearl Harbor took place in December 1941. And uh, uh, most people, you know, don't give, give that much thought as to what the situation was in the war in December 1941. 
Well, it's important to know that Hitler had gone to war against the Soviet Union. He had attacked the Soviet Union in June of that same year in 41. And the consensus, not only in Germany, but also among the cognoscenti in London and Washington, was that that war would take about two months, maximum eight weeks, and it would be game over with the Soviet Union. It was generally expected that the German war machine would do to the Soviet Union what it had done to Poland in 1939, to the low countries in France in 1940, and that it would simply be uh, the, the German tanks rolling in and uh, reaching Moscow in no time at all, and that white flag would come up where the red flag used to be waved, and the Soviet Union would be kaput. And that would have been a fantastic victory for Nazi Germany. It would have realized the life dream of Hitler, and uh, it would have wiped out the, the communism, or the, 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 we might say the cradle of world communism. And um, it also would have provided Nazi Germany with what it really needed to wage war in the long term and made Nazi Germany, Nazi Germany a real world power. Because not, Germany was, a, was and still is a major industrial power, but it does not have too many raw materials, such as very important uh, rubber and even more importantly, uh, petroleum. So one of the, uh, one of the objectives of the, of the war against the Soviet Union was not only merely to smash the Soviet Union, was to grab the oil fields of the Caucasus and if, if with that oil, the Nazi Germany would have been able to fight a war against anybody for a long time. And that was very, very important. But the problem then was that, that while the war against the Soviet Union went well at first, the Germans were making pretty spectacular progress. It soon, they soon got bogged down. And by the fall of 1941, they were still in, in, deep in Russia when they were supposed to have finished off the, the red, so to speak. And then the big moment came on the 5th of December 1941, when the, when the Red Army launched a counteroffensive in front of Moscow and threw the Germans back by anywhere from 100 to 200 kilometers. And uh, that meant that the Nazis then didn't, were still far from the oil fields of the Caucasus and were, had to now prepare for a defensive warfare in the middle of winter, which they had never prepared for. And uh, that, that same day, on the 5th of December 1941, symbolically, that's the real turning point of the war. That is the day that the German generals told Hitler that he was going to lose the war, that they could no longer hope to win the war. But they didn't tell anybody else. So now this is the 5th of December 1941, and Hitler must have been chewing the carpet for a while, as they claimed that he was doing when he was pretty, pretty frustrated. And then a few days later, he read in the paper pretty well that the, that the Japanese, his Japanese buddies, had attacked Pearl Harbor, which they had never told him about. So it was a total surprise to him. So these two events are connected. Hitler learns about Pearl Harbor, about the Japanese attacking the United States at the moment when he knows that he's in deep trouble in Russia and his generals have told him he'll probably lose the war so, so that, you know, that, that he has no longer any hope of winning the war. There was a tripartite pact with Japan, Germany and Italy, right? Yes, there was a pact, but like, as, like I said before, there was, the pact did not involve the obligation to come to the aid of the, of the partner when that partner attacked him or herself, another country. So the pact only kicked in. The obligation to come to the aid of your partner was only in case that partner was attacked. But Japan was not attacked in Pearl Harbor. Japan attacked the United States in Pearl Harbor. So Hitler had no obligation whatsoever to come to declare war in the United States because of Japan's attack on the United States. None, none whatsoever. Just as the United States, as Japan did not declare war on the Soviet Union six months earlier, when Nazi Germany attacked the Soviet Union, they had no obligation whatsoever. So Hitler didn't have to do anything at all. And the United States didn't expect 
him to do anything and didn't expect to declare war on him. Okay, but Hitler did declare war. And the, the, the thinking behind that was that he would, he thought, he hoped, desperately hoped, gambled that by making that gesture, by the showing, in a, by making a big show of solidarity with his Japanese buddies, by declaring war on their American enemy, that the Japanese would be so impressed that they would reciprocate and declare war on Hitler's enemy, the Soviets. And that's the thinking that Hitler felt would still give him a chance to win the war against the Soviets because the Japanese army, the bulk of the Japanese army was based in China, in Manchuria, which is actually right there near Vladivostok in the far eastern reaches of the Soviet Union. And Hitler figured that if the Japanese then would attack the Ruskies over there, then the Soviets would have to fight a two-front war against the Japanese in the east and against us in the west. And then maybe we still have a chance to win that war. Now, it's a huge gamble. It was a huge gamble. I'm sure that his generals must have said, I don't think it's a good idea. But Hitler said, let's do it. What can we lose? And he did declare war in the United States on the 11th of December 1941 and then waited for the Japanese to reciprocate. But the Japanese simply said, thank you very much and never declared war in the Soviet Union. So Hitler was really was really screwed because he now had another enemy and no relief in sight in his war, in his losing war against the Soviet Union. But that is the background. That is the reason why the United States, sorry, why the United States was declared war on by Hitler. Have you reflected on how history might likely have played out differently had Hitler not taken that gamble in declaring war on the United States? What would have happened otherwise? Well, there would have been, there probably would have been rather than what turned out now in the reality of one major world war, uh, there would have been probably two major wars because there was a war raging in Europe uh, in 1941, late 1941, between on the one hand Nazi Germany and its ally Italy and other some small countries against basically the the the, the an interesting alliance, not alliance, de facto alliance between the Soviet Union and Great Britain, who were also still in the war, right? And that war could have gone on for quite some time, and we'll talk about it in a minute. And then there would have been another war in the Far East between the United States and Japan, which the United States was planning to win in no time at all. In fact, the United States felt they had totally underestimated Japan. They thought that Japan would easily be forced to surrender by bombings from the air. There's, I can I cite in some of my articles uh, statements by American generals at the time who said, that the Japanese cities made of wood and paper will burn, you know, uh, like it will burn to a crisp with our bombers based in Manila, will bomb the hell out of them, and they'll just be begging to surrender. And uh, that, of course, well, did not quite happen. The Japanese were much tougher not to crack. Um, so that that was the idea, that there would have been a war between the United States and Japan, which the Americans would have won easily. Now, even if there would have been a war against Japan only, the Americans probably would not have won it, won it easily, but we don't know that. Now, what would have happened on the, on the other side, well, the war would have continued between uh, Nazi Germany fighting mostly on the eastern on the on the eastern front, and Great Britain still being having an army intact on its island. And uh, after the Battle of Moscow, it was clear that the Germans could not win anymore. Now, mind you, they probably would have held being managed to to f continue fighting for quite a few more years, as they did, in fact. Uh, but uh, undoubtedly, or at least in my mind, there's not much doubt about it, that the combination, the alliance of the Soviet Union and Britain eventually would have beaten Nazi Germany, especially, especially, and this is the main factor, 
since Nazi Germany had a fantastic army, uh, well-equipped and all that, but was out of petroleum. And they had failed, and this was the big reason why his generals told Hitler that he was going to lose the war. They had failed to capture the oil fields of the Caucasus. And that was crucial. I mean, we all know that at the end of the war, for example, the Germans had, had jet fighters and tiger tanks that were bigger and better than anything the Allies had. How come we didn't beat us? Because most of our troops captured those planes and those tanks sitting on the ground because they had no fuel to operate them. If, we, if you think of the landings in Normandy in 1944, you see footage of that. You see Allied airplanes in the sky all over the place. And where's the Luftwaffe? They're nowhere around. Are their planes kaput? No, but they're sitting on the ground because they have no fuel. They have, in, in the movie, The Longest Day, which is not a good historical uh, source, but still reflects some historical realities, there's a wonderful scene of two German Messerschmitt pilots who fly a mission for one hour, and then they fly to their home base, and the guy says, that's it for us today. We have no more petroleum. You know, we can, we can no, no, no more fuel to fly. And that is the reality that the German war machine was starved of the fuel needed to fight and win a war. So there's no doubt in my mind that even without, without American help, you know, the, the, the Soviets, with help from the British, and even without help from the British, would have won the war if there would have been a war only in Europe. And the United States very likely would have won the war against Japan, but only with great difficulty. Uh, much more, it would have been much more difficult than they had believed when they started that war. War is good for business, essentially. So... I guess my final question is, is it possible in today's society for, for big business to thrive in America without building up a military industrial complex? Well, the, the, in the 1930s, business was down in the United States. There was a major, major crisis because of the lack of de economic demand. Uh, the, the American industry was capable of producing enormous amounts of goods, including weapons, including cars, including planes, you name it. But the demand simply wasn't there, and that was all changed because of the war. Because when the war started, uh, basically the, the, the America's war machine became the, the big the big customer of American industry. In other words, the war revived economic demand big time, and uh, that was so in a number of stages. It helped, for example, that the British already at an early stage, even before Pearl Harbor, even before the Americans themselves came into the war start to buy all kinds of goods in the States. That meant that production in Detroit and elsewhere of, of production of airplanes and cars and, and trucks, well, trucks especially, and, and military equipment started to go up big time because of to meet the demand from the British. So that's how, the, how, how basically the United States got out of the crisis, of the economic crisis, because thanks to the demand stimulated by the war. And indeed, at the end of the war, there was a major concern among American economists, just like just as the young Samuelson, who became famous later on for his textbooks in economics at universities until even recently, I guess, you know, there was a big concern that the end of the war would mean sliding back into the depression, because when the war be over, not only would the demand would the demand slack again, but millions of military personnel would be laid off, the war would be over, and be looking for jobs at a moment when the production, the, the, the diminishing production would mean fewer jobs. So the prediction was for, for major, major, uh, major crisis to, to, to visit the United States again after the war. And that is why actually the Cold War picked up the slack, and later on the Gulf War, and later on the war against terrorism. What, we, what I'm saying is that ever since the Second World War, 
the American economy has become dependent on war to keep going. Uh, in fact, I sometimes say half jokingly that if peace would break out today, it would be a catastrophe for the American economy because the American economy basically would lose its biggest customer. And its biggest customer is, is basically is, is the war machine. And that's also one way we can understand NATO, for example. NATO is, a very, is very important, not because not to protect Europe. That, that is not necessary at all. But NATO basically is a way, NATO is, is, is a promotional a machine, a marketing machine for the for American industry. Because if a country wants to join NATO, that means they have to buy weapons from the United States, so that's good for American business. So what I'm saying is the first, the Second World War, and later on the Cold War, and later on the Gulf War, and later on the war in Iraq, and later on the war against terrorism anywhere has been wonderful for business. Uh, when war is good for American business and peace would be very bad for American business. That's, that, that's a sad reality. We've been speaking with Dr. Jacques Powells, a Belgian-born Canadian historian. He's the author of the 2000 book, The Myth of the Good War, America in the Second World War. His website is www.jacquespowells.net, and you can find many of his articles at globalresearch.ca. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. When community members approach a solemn occasion like Remembrance Day or Veterans Day, as they call it in the U.S., they presumably want to believe that soldiers' deaths on the battlefield were not in vain, that the world is a better place today as a result of their sacrifice. So how to reconcile this remembrance and the imperative of never again allowing the specter of war to cripple our humanity and our Earth with an economic reality spoken of previously that war is fantastic for business? For the 99% and for all living things on this planet, warfare must be discouraged and eliminated as a social force. Yet in 2019, not one major political party, either in the U.S. House of Congress or the Canadian House of Commons, is calling for an end or even a substantial reduction in military expenditures. Where is the anti-war movement, which was once so robust in the past? Joining us to discuss the permanent war of the U.S.-led Axis of Domination is Ajamu Baraka, a well-known writer, speaker, and social activist. Mr. Baraka is the national organizer of the U.S.-based Black Alliance for Peace. He's an executive member of the U.S. Peace Council and was the vice presidential candidate for the Green Party during the 2016 U.S. election campaign. He was also the founding executive director of the U.S. Human Rights Network from July 20, 2004 until June 2011. He's the recipient of the 2019 Serena Shim Award for Uncompromised Integrity in Journalism, an honor formerly bestowed on Julian Assange, Max Blumenthal, Vanessa Beely, Eva Bartlett, and Charmaine Narwani, among other outstanding independent journalists. He's also the recent recipient of the U.S. Peace Memorial Foundation's 2019 Peace Prize for his bold anti-war actions, writings, speeches, and leadership an inspiring voice against militarism. A sought-after commentator on criminal justice and international human rights affairs, he's appeared on a number of outlets, including CNN, BBC, The Tavis Smiley Show, Telemundo, ABC's World News Tonight, Black Commentator, Russia Today, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. He's also a contributing writer for various publications, including Black Commentator, Common Dreams, Pam Bazooka, and dissident voice. He's currently an editor and contributing columnist for the Black Agenda Report and a writer for Counterpunch. Mr. Bagraka will be speaking during this the following 
Remembrance Day, the week following Remembrance Day in five Canadian cities. He joins us now from Atlanta, Georgia. Arjuma, Ajumo, excuse me, Ajamu Baraka, we're very honored to have you on our program. Michael, it's my pleasure to be here. Before we look at the state of the anti-war movement in 2019, I wanted to go over a little bit of history with you. Many of us look to the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations of the 60s and early 70s for inspiration. Uh, Canadians, of course, were involved by supporting the draft evaders. But it should be noted that at the outset, earlier in the decade, there was a racialized character to the resistance. And it was... Only after relatively privileged white families saw their sons dying in the war that the movement truly exploded. Could you comment on how that emphasis on connecting the imperial war agenda in Vietnam with anti-poverty and anti-racist struggle in America, uh, how it evolved within the anti-war movement of that decade? Uh, That's a very important um, observation and and question, Michael. Um, There there was that foundation, and and that. Uh, resistance to the Vietnam conflict, um, many people don't remember or don't know that some of the first organizations to express opposition to Vietnam uh, were uh, those organizations involved in the uh, struggle for social justice, for democratic rights and human rights uh, in the U.S. and primarily uh, in the South. Uh, So, for example, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, one of the first major organizations uh, to oppose uh, the Vietnam War and to oppose uh, the draft. And that was significant on a number of different levels. One was that uh, many of the uh, young white activists that would emerge as uh, effective uh, and important uh, voices in the anti-war movement uh, got their, you know, cut their sort of organizational and political teeth uh, in the South. Uh, volunteering, uh, they volunteered in various parts of the South, in Mississippi specifically, uh, working with uh, with SNCC. Um, and those individuals ended up uh, moving back to their respective um, communities, uh, campuses primarily, uh, and they began to agitate also in opposition to, uh, to the war. Now, SNCC took its position, uh, as did other uh, organizations that, uh, emerged in what we uh, refer to as the uh, Black Liberation Movement, um, because it was quite clear that uh, there was not only a, a racial component to the conflict, but a, a class component. You know, uh, the Black Movement, uh, the radical Black Movement, has, has always had an internationalist perspective, a very clear uh, class perspective, and a very clear anti-colonial uh, perspective and position. Uh, and so uh, these young black radicals understood very uh, clearly that this conflict in Vietnam was a colonial conflict. It was a uh, conflict that was attempting to undermine the attempts by the, by the Vietnamese uh, to exercise uh, national sovereignty, to uh, free themselves from the colonial grip uh, of, of the Western powers, uh, and therefore uh, it was a, a, a natural and... Um, almost imperative position on the part of the black liberation movement uh, to oppose Vietnam. And that, that rationale that we saw uh, emerge in those years became uh, and is the same rationale for uh, why uh, radical black uh, intellectuals and organizations uh, continue to oppose uh, U.S. imperialism, but also uh, Western imperialism 
uh, as a whole, even up to today. Mm. Well, it, it does appear that the anti-war movement uh, in, of the 60s and 70s was successful, at least in terms of bringing an end to the Vietnam War. What lessons would you say the ruling class learned from that war so as not to be threatened again by those popular mobilizations? Well, one thing that I think that they may have learned is that they were able to take advantage of some of the the uh, uh, internal political contradictions uh, within the, uh, the the population, but specifically uh, within the, the Democrat Party. Many people uh, forget that uh, the driving force uh, in the uh, Vietnam War was, in fact, the Democrat Party, um, and that uh, because the Democrat Party was, was uh, committed to Vietnam uh, while simultaneously giving a lip service uh, and some support to the civil rights movement, uh, it, it created a contradiction that was really uh, irreconcilable. Um, and eventually the uh, imperialist uh, objectives of U.S. foreign policy wind out over things like uh, Johnson's Great Society uh, program. Uh, and so it, 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 it compelled even moderate forces like uh, Dr. King uh, to eventually oppose uh, the Vietnam War. So. You know, these internal issues, uh, this, this tension between advancing a progressive domestic um, project uh, policies uh, versus the, the imperative of, of U.S. imperialist objectives uh, has always been a, a real tension uh, that the uh, bourgeoisie or the ruling class has learned to, to, to manage and to exploit. And one of the most effective weapons that they have used to, in fact, do that uh, emerged um, in the 1990s with this uh, notion of humanitarian intervention uh, and from that the so-called responsibility to uh, protect. So they, uh, their attempt to manage and to exploit these, 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 these issues uh, has resulted in the creation of a very, very effective ideological weapon, uh, playing on the sentiments of liberals, uh, who, uh, you know, engage in this sort of white saviorism, uh, who uh, uh, will respond uh, positively if you frame uh, uh, a leadership or a so-called regime as authoritarian, um, uh, if you appeal to this notion of American um, exceptionalism, uh, that you can, in fact, uh, split the ranks of the uh, potential opposition to U.S. Uh, intervention uh, and you can uh, silence uh, and marginalize uh, the, the, the anti-war movement, uh, those uh, elements that are uh, anti-imperialist, uh, and you can marginalize them and create and project a, a, a new kind of, of rationale that uh, resonates with a large number of people in the U.S. It seems like one of the areas where that schism is evident is uh, the, the fact that the, one of the major contributors to the anti-war movement being the, the deaths of American soldiers, uh, as I outlined earlier. Yet th th there are forms of warfare that don't necessarily involve a lot of American deaths. I mean, airstrikes for one, but also proxy forces like the Contras in Nicaragua or its Wahhabist equivalents in the Middle East and uh, North Africa. Could you talk about those less obvious forms of warfare and, and how – the movement can adequately cope with them. 
You know, it, 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 it's, that's a very important uh, question because it, it, it's connected to your previous question. That is, that the lessons that were learned from the, the bourgeoisie uh, or by the bourgeoisie or the ruling class uh, and, and lessons that they had to then relearn. And what I mean by that is this. One of the lessons of Vietnam was that they, uh, they saw that they had to attempt to, to separate uh, from the U.S. public the, the brutal realities of the war. Um, and they saw that when you know, there's a large introduction of, 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 of boots on the ground, if you will, uh, that if there are large numbers of casualties, uh, then they will eventually lose of support uh, for their intervention. So, you know, they had to move uh, very cautiously uh, throughout the 80s and into the 90s in terms of introducing large numbers of, of U.S. troops. Uh, you know, we had the, the, the consequence was the so-called Vietnam Syndrome. Uh, but when they saw that they could begin to introduce uh, troops, uh, like uh, when they uh, invaded uh, Grenada uh, and then the attack on Panama, uh, then they were gradually reversing that process, which culminated in the, the, the massive uh, mistake that they made in 2003 with the uh, invasion of Iraq. Uh, and from that, they had to relearn the consequence of introducing large ground forces into conflicts, uh, because they, that, that uh, opposition began to build, uh, and they, uh, e they eventually suffered a, a major strategic retreat or defeat. Uh, in Iraq and actually in Afghanistan, which they've already lost, but the American public just uh, is really, really unaware of that. So they have been now depending more and more on these uh, uh, proxy forces, uh, on the use of, of air, air, air uh, power, um, and they have, in fact, redefined what a war is. In fact, uh, uh, Barack Hussein Obama suggested to the uh, Congress and to the public uh, when there was resistance to his introduction of, 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 of military uh, 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 attention into Syria and other places, and Libya in particular, that it wasn't actually a war as long as the U.S. forces and U.S. troops are not dying. So this whole notion of what is and what isn't a war has shifted, uh, and the dependency on, on uh, certain kinds of military interventions, but even more importantly, Michael, now they have been able to effectively use uh, econ state sanctions, economic warfare, uh, siege uh, warfare, uh, blockading economies, uh, with consequences uh, as almost as devastating as direct military uh, interventions. And that's the new phase of military conflict, uh, warfare, uh, that the anti-war movement is starting to grapple with and attempting to try to figure out how we uh, uh, bring a new kind of consciousness to the, to the public on how uh, the U.S. state and the Western states are advancing their uh, uh, agenda uh, using these, uh, these new tools, if you will. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Ajamu Baraka. He is, of course, a uh, award-winning speaker, activist, and commentator, and he's also going to be uh, in Canada from uh, during the days following Remembrance Day to, to speak to a Canadian audience. But, uh, Mr. Baraka, 
We see popular movements today around poverty, gender politics, refugee rights, Black Lives Matter, and especially climate action. Yet these movements, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they seem completely hived off from that anti-imperialist, anti-colonial perspective that you alluded to. Can you speak to the importance of incorporating those perspectives in these popular movements and, and how and why progressive leaders are you know, seeming to miss that vital link? You know that that that, that what we what we what we see in the U.S. Uh, in particular is a strange kind of of U.S. centric uh, perspective in which one can be defined as a progressive or even a radical, and only have a focus on domestic uh, politics and and domestic oriented uh, policies, uh, and that's been one of the uh, uh, great uh, uh, victories, if you will, on the part of the ruling class. So. The uh, uh, full the commitment on the part of the U.S. state to to full spectrum dominance, uh, to the use of of, of, the, of the military to intervene into various uh, nations, uh, to uh, get a obscene military budget uh, passed not once but three times during the Trump administration, uh, with no opposition. These have been great victories uh, for the uh, for the ruling elements. So part of the challenge that we are facing in the anti-war, uh, pro-peace, and anti-imperialist movements in the U.S. is to, in fact, uh, make these connections, uh, for to try to to help people understand that, you know, the the lack of social spending um, uh, by the state uh, domestically is connected to the the obscene uh, misappropriation, if you will, of, of theft of public resources uh, for the military. Uh, that one cannot be concerned about so-called Black Lives Matter in the U.S. Uh, while U.S. policies are involved in uh, murdering and, uh, uh, and, and destruction uh, of black and brown lives uh, throughout the entire planet. Uh, that you can't be uh, opposed to uh, uh, militarism uh, in, in, in Africa and forget about the Department of Defense 1033 program that's militarizing police forces in the U.S. Uh, so these connections have to be made, and, and we are attempting in the Black Alliance for Peace, for example, to make those, connect, those connections, that, that we are up against a global system, and that one cannot uh, believe that you can make uh, progressive change domestically without, in fact, looking at and addressing these uh, international contradictions. So this consciousness that we are uh, against a global system, that war uh, is a class issue also, uh, is part of the challenge and part of the program of not only the Black Alliance of Peace, uh, but increasingly uh, other elements of the anti-war movement uh, in the U.S. People are recognizing that we've got to reintroduce, if you will, uh, an internationalist uh, perspective. Mm. Now, a lot of progressive activists are, are getting caught up in the, the palace intrigue around Donald Trump, Russiagate, the impeachment hearings over apparent abuse of power for personal gain. Uh, Democrats in Congress are taking the lead in this ongoing attempt to unseat or at least sully the Trump presidency in the lead up to the next election. As someone who is outside of both of America's big 
political parties. And as an anti-imperialist, what message do you have for grassroots activists seeking meaningful social change in the U.S. who who might be getting caught up in that drama? Is there any utility in working with Democrat partisans, even if just on a temporary basis to address the, the greater evil, as it were? Well, you know, we say that we we have to try to penetrate the the national conversation uh, with um, a a with a perspective that helps us to refocus on the the common agenda uh, of the ruling class and the part bipartisan commitment on the part of of the parties to advance that common agenda, uh, and we have to be creative in doing that. We are pushing the Black Alliance of Peace. A, uh, a a candidate uh, pledge uh, campaign in which we have laid out certain demands uh, that we believe uh, uh, every candidate, uh, every uh, elected member of, of office in the U.S. Uh, should embrace if they want the support of the people. They should be opposed to the Department of Defense 1033 program. They should be opposed to uh, Israeli training of police forces across uh, the country. Uh, they should be opposed to the obscene increase uh, in the military uh, budget. Uh, they should uh, uh, demand that the U.S. Uh, re-enter uh, the, the uh, uh, Iran uh, agreement. Uh, they should oppose the expansion of, of, of nuclear forces and the uh, $1 trillion commitment to upgrading uh, the nuclear uh, forces of the U.S. Uh, state. Uh, so we're saying that you know these kinds of, of programs and policies have to be part of the national conversation, and, and folks have to be creative in trying attempting to do that. Uh, we want people to understand, again, that their interests uh, and the interests of the people are different from the interests of the, of the, of the national uh, ruling class, uh, and we have to separate people uh, from that, that, uh, that perspective, because if not, we're going to continue to see uh, 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 people engage in what I consider to be diversionary politics, this whole emphasis on Donald Trump, uh, uh, reducing the issue of uh, the U.S. state uh, to a personality, uh, is something that we have to combat, because it doesn't really matter who is sitting in uh, the white folks' house uh, there in Washington. Uh, The uh, joint commitment to the structural uh, white supremacy, uh, the colonial capitalist system uh, continues unabated. Uh, And so trying to introduce uh, that kind of of consciousness uh, is a major component of the work that has to be done uh, in the U.S. And so we we say to folks, don't get caught up in the uh, minutia of the the two parties. Uh, Understand what our objective interests are and keep the focus on an analysis that, uh, that foregrounds, that centers a structural uh, analysis, a structural perspective, as opposed to uh, the diversionary politics around personalities. Mm. When you look around the world today, is there any particular example that stands out as a, as a really convenient tool for conveying that distinction about you know the, the, the rooting our our activism in these larger this larger systemic colonial framework? Well, you know, there, there, I don't, there is, there are, there, there are uh, frameworks that are developing. Um, there are, um, there are politics that have to be supported uh, in various states in which there has been, they have carved out some degree of, of space uh, to try to advance a more progressive agenda. For example, 
um, the the states that emerge uh, in in uh, in Latin America uh, that are now all under uh, fire. Uh, uh, we believe in the Black Alliance of Peace uh, that we have to support states like uh, Venezuela and, and Bolivia, um, as as we know that Venezuela is the, was the tip of the of the resistance in Latin America, and even though. You know, some people have some questions about uh, their particular policies and how they were proceeding in terms of their project. Uh, we believe that uh, uh, protecting that space uh, is, is, is vital for anti-imperialist uh, position. And so, uh, and the same thing with, with Bolivia. Uh, we say that we've got to stand in solidarity with the people of, of Haiti. Uh, we've got to understand uh, and be opposed to what is happening with the expansion of NATO uh, in, in South America. So we see these spaces that have to be protected and these people's movements uh, that, are, that are developing uh, in various parts of Latin America and even on the African continent and other places. And they have to be, we have to link up to them uh, and build a real concrete support for. Uh, you know, it, 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 uh, all, it all boils down to this. That basically, we can be in support of various states and we have to be and we should be that are progressive. But if we're not building a people's movement from the bottom up, um, then we are not really uh, uh, responding to our historic uh, responsibility. You know, and I know that's easy, easier said than done, but that has to be the, the, the position that we take. Building effective relationships among various people's organizations um, and finding a way in which we can uh, express our solidarity in concrete ways they help to shift power away uh, from the international ruling class uh, back to the people. So there's no, there's no models there. It's an emergence. And we see uh, the, the, the global rebellion uh, around the world now taking shape um, in places from like Chile and other places where people are in real concrete uh, resistance uh, to the consequences of, of neoliberal uh, capitalism. And we've got to link up with the forces, keep that momentum going, and call for, in the U.S., for example, uh, the people to also take to the streets. People are asking the question, there's a global rebellion against neoliberal capitalism in the U.S. state. And the question is, where are the people in the U.S.? Where are the people in Canada uh, opposing uh, their states who are at the center of the attempt to try to maintain the global hegemony? of the Western alliance. Now, just uh, you just uh, touched on on Canada. Uh, from November 11th to November 16th, you will be in Canada. You'll speak in five Canadian cities, uh, Hamilton, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, and Halifax uh, at events hosted by the Canadian Peace Congress. What message do you have, particularly for Canadians, about what they can and should do to reverse the military trajectory the world is on? We say that we've got to defeat what we refer to as the axis of domination of uh, the U.S., EU, and NATO axis of domination, which is the, the, the centerpiece of the uh, continuation of, of, of Western hegemony that started with the invasion of the Americas in 1492. And our message to the people of Canada is, quite simply, what side are you going to be on? Are you going to stand in solidarity with uh, your national bourgeoisie to maintain the uh, the pan-European colonial capitalist white supremacist patriarchy, or are you going to stand with the vast majority of the people uh, and help to build a new world? So uh, our 
message to uh, the people in the settler colonial state of Canada is consistent with our message to the people of the settler colonial state in the U.S., uh, that they have a responsibility uh, to bring about a process of authentic decolonization. Uh, they have to uh, stand uh, as, a re- as a historic uh, responsibility with the people in the colonized world. Uh, they've got to disconnect themselves from the sentiments of their own national states and stand with the majority of the people in the world who are advocating for and struggling for uh, a new world. That will be our main message uh, as we move through uh, Canada uh, during those, those days next week. Ajamu Baraka, I really appreciate your taking the time to share these views with our listeners. Uh, I wish you well on your Eastern Canadian tour. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Ajamu Baraka, award-winning speaker, activist, and commentator. Information about Mr. Baraka's organization, Black Alliance for Peace, can be found at www.blackallianceforpeace.com. He'll be in the following Canadian cities over the coming days. On November 11th, he will be in Hamilton, Ontario at 7 p.m. at the New Vision United Church at 24 Main Street West. On Wednesday, November 13th, he'll be in Toronto at 7.30 p.m. at the Noor Cultural Centre at 123 Winford Drive, Toronto, just north of Eglinton Avenue, near Don Mills Road. On Thursday, November 14th, he'll be in Ottawa at 7.30 p.m. at McNabb Community Centre at 180 Percy Street. On Friday, November 15th, he'll be in Montreal at a time and location to be announced. Finally, on Saturday, November 16th, Mr. Baraka will be in Halifax, Nova Scotia, at 2 p.m. local time at the Halifax North Public Library at 2285 Gottingen Street. You can find out more about Mr. Baraka's visit to Canada this month by visiting the page Ajamu Baraka's Eastern Canada Tour on Facebook. We've come to the end of another episode of the Global Research News Hour. The Global Research News Hour airs on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner community and internet radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show is also available for download from the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this show, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. We leave you now with the 1976 classic No Man's Land by Eric Bogle. My name is Michael Welch. Thanks for listening. And I can't help but wonder now, Willie McBride, do all those who lie here know why they died? Did you really believe them when they told you the cause? You really believe that this war would end war? The suffering, the sorrow, the glory, the shame, the killing, the dying, it was all done in vain. For Willie McBride it all happened again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Did they beat the drums slowly? They sound the five lonely Did the rifles fire or ye As they lowered you down Did the bugles sing the last post in chorus Did the pipes play the flutes of the fall 
Did the pipes play the flute to the floor? 